I'm Peter Medic, and you're listening to Episode 7 of Return of the Birds. If this is the first time you've dropped into the story, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episodes, but you're welcome to stick around. Please visit 44from26.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. Right quick before we start, I want to give a special thank you to the thousands of women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I used over the course of this audiobook. You're doing selfless and important work. Thank you. And one more thing. If you know someone who likes being outdoors, being outside, or being in nature, please tell them about Return of the Birds. It would really help the trajectory of our show. Thank you. Ever since I entered the woods, even while listening to the lesser songsters, or contemplating the silent forms about me, a strain has reached my ears from out of the depths of the forest that, to me, is the finest sound in nature, the song of the hermit thrush. I often hear him thus a long way off, sometimes over a quarter of a mile away, when only the stronger and more perfect parts of his music reach me. and through the general chorus of wrens and warblers, I detect this sound rising pure and serene, as if a spirit from some remote height were slowly chanting a divine accompaniment. This song appeals to the sentiment of the beautiful in me, and suggests a serene religious beautitude, as no other sound in nature does. It is perhaps more of an evening than a morning hymn though I hear it at all hours of the day. It is very simple, and I can hardly tell the secret of its charm. O spheral, O spheral, he seems to say, O holy, holy, O clear away, clear away, O clear up, clear up. Interspersed with the finest trills and the most delicate preludes. It is not a proud, gorgeous strain, like the tanagers or the grosbeaks, suggests no passion or emotion, nothing personal, but seems to be the voice of that calm, sweet solemnity one attains in his best moments. It realizes a peace and a deep, solemn joy that only the finest souls may know. A few nights ago, I ascended a mountain to see the world by moonlight, and when near the summit, the hermit commenced his evening hymn a few rods from me. Listening to this strain on the lone mountain, with the full moon just rounded from the horizon, the pomp of your cities and the pride of your civilization seem trivial and cheap. I have seldom known two of these birds to be singing at the same time in the same locality, rivaling each other, like the wood thrush or the viri, shooting one from a tree, 
I have observed another take up the strain from almost the identical perch in less than 10 minutes afterward. Later in the day, when I had penetrated the heart of the old bark peeling, I came suddenly upon one singing from a low stump, and for a wonder, he did not seem alarmed, but lifted up his divine voice as if his privacy were undisturbed. I open his beak and find the inside yellow as gold. I was prepared to find it inlaid with pearls and diamonds, or to see an angel issue from it. He is not much in the books. Indeed, I am acquainted with scarcely any writer on ornithology whose head is not muddled on the subject of our three prevailing song thrushes, confounding either their figures or their songs. A writer in the Atlantic gravely tells us the wood thrush is sometimes called the hermit, and then, after describing the song of the hermit with great beauty and correctness, coolly ascribes it to the viri. The New Cyclopedia, fresh from the study of Audubon, says the hermit's song consists of a simple plaintive note, and that the viri's resembles that of the wood thrush. The hermit thrush may be easily identified by his color, his back being a clear olive brown, becoming rufous on his rump and tail. A quill from his wing placed beside one from his tail on a dark ground presents quite a marked contrast. I walk along the old road and note tracks in the thin layer of mud. When do these creatures travel here? I have never yet chanced to meet one. Here a partridge has set his foot. There a woodcock. Here a squirrel or mink. There a skunk. There a fox. What a clear, nervous track Renyard makes. How easy to distinguish it from that of a little dog. It's so sharply cut and defined. A dog's track is coarse and clumsy beside it. There is as much wilderness in the track of an animal as in its voice. Is a deer's track like a sheep's or a goat's? What wing-footed fleetness and agility may be inferred from the sharp braided track of the gray squirrel upon the new snow? Ah, uh, in nature is the best discipline. How the woodlife sharpens the senses, giving new power to the eye, to the ear, the nose, and are not the rarest and most exquisite songsters woodbirds? Everywhere in these solitudes, I am greeted with the pensive, almost pathetic note of the wood peewee. The peewees are the true flycatchers, and easily identified. They are very characteristic birds, have strong family traits, and pugnacious dispositions. They are the least attractive or elegant birds of our fields or forest. Sharp-shouldered, big-headed, short-legged, of no particular color, of little elegance in flight or movement. With a disagreeable flirt of the tail, always quarreling with their neighbors and with one another. No birds are so little calculated to excite pleasurable emotions in the beholder, or to become objects of human interest and affection.
The kingbird is the best-dressed member of the family. But he is a braggart, and though always snubbing his neighbors, is an errant coward, and shows the white feather at the slightest display of pluck in his antagonist. I have seen him turn tail to a swallow, and have known the little peewee in question to whip him beautifully. From the great crested to the little green flycatcher, their ways and general habits are the same. Slow in flying from point to point, they yet have a wonderful quickness and snap up the fleetest insects with little apparent effort. There is a constant play of nervous quick movements underneath their outer show of calmness and stolidity. They do not scour the limbs and trees like warblers, but, perched upon the middle branches, wait, like true hunters, for the game to come along. There is often a very audible snap of the beak as they seize their prey. The wood peewee, the prevailing species in this locality, arrests your attention by his sweet, pathetic cry. There is room for it also in the deep woods, as well as for the more prolonged and elevated strains. Its relative, the Phoebe bird, builds an exquisite nest of moss on the side of some shelving cliff or overhanging rock. The other day, passing by a ledge near the top of a mountain in a singularly desolate locality, my eye rested upon one of those structures, looking precisely as if it grew there, so in keeping it was with the mossy character of the rock. And I've had a growing affection for the bird ever since. The rock seemed to love the nest and to claim it as its own. I said, what a lesson in architecture is here. Here's a house that was built with such loving care and such beautiful adaptation of the means to the end that it looks like a product of nature. The same wise economy is noticeable in the nest of all birds. No bird could paint its house white or red or add aught for show. At one point, in the grayest, most shaggy part of the woods, I came suddenly upon a brood of screech owls, full-grown, sitting together upon a dry, moss-draped limb, but a few feet from the ground. I pause within four or five yards of them, and am looking about me, when my eye alights upon these gray, motionless figures. They sit perfectly upright, some with their backs and some with their breasts towards me, but every head turns squarely in my direction. Their eyes are closed to a mere black line. Through this crack, they are watching me, evidently thinking themselves unobserved. The spectacle is weird and grotesque, and suggests something impish and uncanny. It is a new effect, the night side of the woods by daylight. After observing them a moment, I take a single step toward them, when, quick as thought, their eyes fly wide open, their attitude is changed, they bend some this way, some that, and, instinct with life and motion, stare wildly around them. Another step, and they all take flight but one, which stoops low on the branch, and with a look of a frightened cat regards me for a few seconds over its shoulder. They fly swiftly and softly, and disperse through the trees. I shoot one, which is of a tawny red tint, like that figured by Wilson. It is a singular fact that the plumage of these owls presents two totally distinct phases, which, quote, have no relation to sex, age, or season, end quote, one being an ashen gray, 
the other a bright rufus. Coming to a drier and less mossy place in the woods, I'm amused with the golden-crowned thrush, which, however, is no thrush at all, but a warbler. He walks on the ground ahead of me, with such an easy gliding motion, and with such an unconscious, preoccupied air, jerking his head like a hen or a partridge, now hurrying, now slackening his pace, that I pause to observe him. I sit down. He pauses to observe me, and extends his pretty ramblings on all sides, apparently very much engrossed with his own affairs, but never losing sight of me. But few of the birds are walkers, most being hoppers, like the robin. Satisfied that I have no hostile intentions, the petty pedestrian mounts a limb a few feet from the ground and gives me the benefit of one of his most musical performances, a sort of accelerating chant. Commencing in a very low key, which makes him seem at a very uncertain distance, he grows louder and louder until his body quakes and his chant runs into a shriek ringing in my ear with a peculiar sharpness. This lay may be represented thus. Teacher, 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 teacher. The accent on the first syllable and each word uttered with increased force and shrillness. Teacher, 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 teacher. No writer with whom I am acquainted gives him credit for more musical ability than is displayed in this strain. Yet, in this, the half is not told. He has a far rarer song, which he reserves for some nymph whom he meets in the air. Mounting by easy flights to the top of the tallest tree, he launches into the air with a sort of suspended, hovering flight, like certain of the finches, and bursts into a perfect ecstasy of song, clear, ringing, copious, rivaling the goldfinches in vivacity and the linnets in melody. This strain is one of the rarest bits of bird melody to be heard, and is oftenest indulged in the late afternoon or after sundown. Over the woods, hid from view, the ecstatic singer warbles his finest strain. In this song, you will instantly detect his relationship to the water wagtail, erroneously called water thrush, whose song is likewise a sudden burst, full and ringing, with a tone of youthful joyousness in it, as if the bird had just had some unexpected good fortune. For nearly two years, this strain of the pretty walker was little more than a disembodied voice to me, and I was puzzled by it, as Thoreau by his mysterious night warbler, which, by the way, I suspect was no new bird at all, but one he was otherwise familiar with. The little bird himself seems disposed to keep the matter a secret, and improves every opportunity to repeat before you his shrill, accelerating lay as if this were quite enough, and all he laid claim to. Still, I trust I am betraying no confidence in making the matter public here. I think this is preeminently his love song, as I hear it oftenest about the mating season. I have caught half-suppressed bursts of it from two males chasing each other with fearful speed through the forest.
You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, mastering, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. We invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community. For more updates, check out 44from26.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you hear one or two and want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Thank you for listening. Till next time, chirp away.